almost there. We've come a long way. It's been a, a great ride uh, going on almost two years. Is that right? Over, yeah, I think so. I'm not sure that we've been in the book of Mark, uh, but it's been great. Can't get enough of it. Uh, so hopefully you're there. Um, if not, the scripture verses appear on the screen for you. But tonight I want to start by asking you a question. Uh, and I hope that you will be brutally honest with yourself, not with me, but with you and the Lord in answering. Have you in your life as a follower of Jesus Christ ever made a sacrifice of extraordinary love? Can you recall a time when you did something that really cost you? You actually maybe went without something you really wanted because of a sacrifice of extraordinary love for Jesus. Now that's a question only you and the Lord know the answer to, but I want you to think about it because it pertains to our uh, message tonight. The sad fact, the sad truth is that we are good at giving Jesus our leftovers, our hand-me-downs, right? Um, sometimes we clean out our closets and things like that, things that were no longer good enough of being in our house or in our closet, but it was good enough for, for Jesus, right? I can't tell you how many bags of clothing that I've gone through uh, in doing outreach ministry and things like that of now clothes that are nice, that's great. That's what you should be donating. That's what you should be giving. But clothes that are completely worn out and have holes in them and smell horrible and, you know, why would anyone want to give that to the work of the Lord? Is beyond me. I don't understand, but people do. But spiritually, we are guilty of doing that exact thing. In Mark uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, tonight we're going to see something altogether different, something truly remarkable and indisputable sacrifice of love by a woman that Mark allows to re uh, remain anonymous. But we know that this was Mary. And I'll get into that in just a little bit. But we're also going to see the tale of two lives that cannot stand in greater contrast when it comes to the true and unreserved devotion to our Lord. One being a woman who gave her very best, and two, a man named Judas, a disciple who betrayed the Son of God. Of the woman, Jesus said, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And that'll be in verse 9. And of Judas, the Lord said, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So two very uh, distinctly drastic and uh, contrasted lives that we're going to read about tonight. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. After two days was the feast of the Passover. 
and of unleavened bread. And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman, having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some who had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She has wrought a good work on me. For you have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good. But me you have not always. She has done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she has done shall be speaking of for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Wow. Again, what a contrast. The backdrop of this uh, portion of scripture tonight is during the Jewish feast of Passover and unleavened bread. The celebration took place annually and was observed in Jerusalem. It was a time of remembrance and thanksgiving for God's miraculous deliverance of the Hebrews uh, from the Egyptian bondage through the Exodus. And this Jewish feast included the slaughter of the Passover lamb, uh, whose blood on the doorpost had caused 14 years earlier the death angel to pass over, right? You know the story, to pass over each home uh, where he saw the blood sparing the life of the firstborn in the family, and that's Exodus 12. Verses 13, one of my favorite verses, uh, Exodus 12, verses 13, it says, And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, right there, that's the key. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Now today... That still applies. When the Lord God Almighty looks down and sees the blood of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, applied to our heart, we will not experience death in the way that those who do not know the Lord as their Savior. Why? Because we will spend eternity with him in heaven. The blood must be applied. Jewish people were flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate. But in the shadows of secrecy, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and scribes, were seeking to arrest Jesus and kill him. And in truth, the church has always been the biggest enemy of the Lord. And when I say that, I mean the apostate church. 
has always been the biggest enemy of the Lord. And that seems crazy to us. Well, I thought the church, people in the church loved Jesus. Well, all throughout Mark, we've seen every religious type were the ones that confronted him, that had an issue with him, that constantly tried to, to bring him down, to demean him, to discredit him as the Savior, as the Messiah. And sadly, we see that happening yet today. Mark says they hoped to arrest him, right? In some sly, cunning way. The, the King James Version says, by craft. A crafty way, right? But they felt that they had to wait until after the feast, because they didn't want to upset the people. They didn't want to cause a riot. Why? Because they knew that Jesus was popular with the people, with the common folk. And they didn't want the crowds to go crazy over that. They wanted it to be on their time, on their terms. But things would proceed on God's timetable and not theirs. And Christ, the Passover lamb, would be sacrificed for us right on time. You see, Jesus would actually be handed over to the Roman authorities and die on Passover day, even at 3 p.m., which was the exact time the Paschal Lamb was offered. Coincidence? I think not. Rather, a divine appointment. For the ultimate sacrifice to lay down his life once and for all and to fulfill the law completely. Suddenly in verse 3 of Mark chapter 14, the scene kind of shifts and we are at the home in Bethany of a man named Simon. And yes, this was Simon the leper that Jesus had healed. And we know that uh, in John's gospel, it tells us that the lady who anointed Jesus' head and feet was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. And uh, as Jesus was reclining at the table in verse 3, and back in those days, they didn't have tables like we do. They kind of sat on the floor with cushions and were just laid back. That sounds like my kind of eating, right? <laughs> just lay there and eat, feast, eat meat, that good stuff. That, that sounds good right about now. But it says that Mary came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure spikenard, very costly, and she broke the flask, meaning not that she broke the entire container, but she broke the seal, the seal that would keep in the fragrance so that when she opened it, it was, uh, had a, a beautiful aroma to it. It hadn't, you know, like when you get a candle and if it's been sitting out for a long time, it kind of loses its smell. But this was fresh. And so when she opened it, the fragrance filled the room and she poured it over the head of Jesus. And the spikenard was a sweet smelling perfume from a rare plant found only in India. And it's interesting to note that the pouring upon him spoke of her anointing him for his burial. And since anointing was generally done after death, get this, by her doing it now, she testified to her belief in the resurrection. She seems to have been the only one who believed in his resurrection before the fact, before it actually happened. Um, Mary was 
Lazarus' sister. So remember, she had Jesus tell her face to face, woman, you're looking at the resurrection. I am the resurrection. She had an encounter with Jesus. She not only heard that he was the resurrection because the disciples had heard. They had heard the whole time they were with the Lord, but she believed it. And sadly, she was the only one at that time who believed it. You see, the three times that Mary was spoken of uh, in the Gospels, where did we find her? At the feet of Jesus. All three times she was at the feet of Jesus. And this was done in full display of a room full of people. It was done against cultural uh, convention as a woman would not normally approach a man in those days and in this setting except to serve him food. But Mary did not have one concern of any of this. Just like Jason uh, preached Sunday morning, Mary broke custom in order to lavish her love on the Lord. Just like the focused father, the father of the prodigal son, he broke custom when he ran to his son. I believe that it's time, I believe this with all of my heart, for us to break custom and begin to get desperate for the Lord. To do whatever it takes, no matter if it's never been done before, if, if there's those like they were here in this passage that are going to stand back and, and mock and murmur and complain, it doesn't matter. We've got to get to Jesus. We've got to get to him. We've got to be that kind of believer. And now is the time. You see, this woman's act of astonishing, radical devotion didn't go unnoticed. It didn't go without criticism. The critics would have no part in praising what this woman had done. The ones uh, doing the talking are the very ones that should have joined in and worshipped at his feet. But they failed to believe. We talked about this Tuesday morning in our Bible study. People, Christian folk, want to get mad at someone who's being blessed. Who the Lord's pouring out in their life. Well, rah, 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 rah. Well, he wants to do it for you too. All you have to do is receive it. Have faith, believe and receive what the Lord has for you. See, Mark tells us that some began to talk among themselves, and they were indignant. How dare she do that? How dare she come and lay at the feet of Jesus, pour that oil over his head, and, and wipe his feet with, with her hair? How dare she do that, right? Self-righteousness was working at its best, and guess who it was led by? One of the disciples, Judas. Self-righteous pride uh, just crippled their hearts, and, and both her motive and her action was questioned. Again, why was this ointment wasted? And this is what he says. Uh, you know, that could have been used to feed the poor. Right, because in those days, 300 denarii, which is what this oil would have costed, would uh, pretty much be like a year's salary then, about $10,000.
So, of course, it was a lot. But I want to tell you, Judas didn't care about the poor. He, he could care, have cared less about the poor. The only thing that he cared about was that the money could be brought within his reach. That's all he was thinking about was the money. He wasn't thinking about the poor. They scolded her. They continually uh, expressed their anger and displeasure at her. The disciples not only demeaned Mary, but they also demeaned Jesus. To honor Jesus in this manner, they said, was a waste. They did not believe he was worthy of such a sacrifice of love. Can I tell you that nothing done for the Lord is a waste? Nothing done for the Lord is a waste. Actually, the only thing in this world that is not a waste is that which is done for the Lord. Everything else we do is a waste. But when we do something unto the Lord, it is never, ever a waste. Some are willing to be poor in their possessions in order to be rich in their devotion to Jesus. But guess what? Others are not. And it's the latter group that's usually the critics. The church folk, right? Well, that's not the way we've ever done it before. Exactly. And look at what it got you. Cold, dead religion. I don't want that. I want more of the Lord. I want, I want everything that he has. I want, just as Jason said on Sunday, I want to experience every benefit of Calvary. The word, the scripture goes on to say in verse 5 that they murmured, Excuse me, that they murmured against her. Can I tell you tonight that murmuring and complaining are sins? Oh, God forgive us, right? Murmuring and complaining are sins, and these sins are probably committed by Christians more than any other sin. In the first place, when we murmur and complain, we are in effect finding fault with the Lord. And I want you to hear me tonight. If there is, in fact, a problem, it's not the Lord's fault that the problem exists. But it's ours or else others. But it's never the Lord's fault. I'm absolutely certain that the Lord doesn't enjoy being blamed for something that he hasn't done. Don't you hate that when you get blamed for something that you haven't done? Think of how much the Lord gets blamed. And he hasn't done anything. Everything that he does is great, and it's for our help and for our benefit. Second, whatever our problem may seem to be, there are untold numbers of others in this world that have it much worse. Much, much worse. As should be obvious. We are blessed. We are blessed in this nation. As bad as we think it's been, we've not seen anything compared to what other believers have suffered for Christ's sake, in other parts of this world. Murmuring about particular situations and circumstances, as bad as that is, uh, is one thing, but to murmur against someone else, when we have a little knowledge as to what is actually happening, is the greatest sin of all. See, pastors have to make hard decisions sometimes that maybe you don't understand, because you have little knowledge of the situation. You know what you should do? You should pray rather than murmur and complain. Because when you begin to murmur and complain, one, you're saying you don't trust the pastor, and two, you don't trust the Lord. 
because the pastor has placed, uh, the, the Lord has placed that pastor there to be the head, to make those hard decisions that you would never have to make, you would never want to make. And you've got to trust them. You've got to, to trust them. One of the favorite pastimes of Christians is to form conclusions and to generate opinions about something of which they have no knowledge. And all of this comes under the heading of judging one's motives, of which we are specifically warned against by the Lord. Matthew 7, 1 through 2, right there tells us, Judge not that ye be not judged. Verse 2, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. So the moment, and we're all guilty of it, the moment we start to murmur and complain, well, if that were me, I would have done this, this, and this. You better watch out because you have no idea what you would do if you were in that position and had the knowledge that that person had. I, I, we refer to it all the time. Uh, Pastor Michael Goins gave a great illustration. He held a cell phone up to your face like this. What do you see? Tell me what it is. You had no idea. Why? Because you were too close to the situation. If you could take a step back and look, you could see it for what it truly was. Right? Sometimes we think we know it all, but we don't know anything. Judas and the disciples who joined in with him and their murmuring against Mary had no idea what she did or why she did it. Again, we're talking about the disciples. They should have been the one doing this, but they didn't get it, and she did. I mean, just think about that. They were with him night and day. He told them over and over what was going to take place. And yet, just a day before he was to be crucified, to be handed over, they still didn't get it. And they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it was going to happen. The world, and sadly many of the church, will never have a problem with moderate, measured devotion to Christ. But they will have a problem when someone makes the decision to walk away from the career. Maybe go on the mission field. Oh, you'll hear all kinds of, well, they're crazy. I can't believe they're doing that. I can't believe they're leaving their job. Do you know how much money they made a year? And now they're just going to throw it all away to go on the mission field? To tell people about Jesus? I mean, do you hear what you're saying? Right? But people will do that. Especially if those deciding to go on the mission field have children. Oh, gosh, they need to think about their kids, right? Now, the Lord God Almighty has told them to do this, and we're going to question and murmur and complain and, and judge why they're doing what they're doing? Shame on us. We should, never, we should celebrate someone willing to give it all up to do the work of the Lord. That is to be celebrated not take, uh, talk down to, right? People would even say, well, they might need to be on medicine. I don't, they might have a chemical imbalance. I don't know what's wrong with them. I've said it all along. I used to think, uh, and it still may come to pass, that Noah was going to be a missionary to a Spanish-speaking country. That child, by the age of two, would cry in his car seat 
because he could not speak Spanish. I would say, what's the matter? I can't speak Spanish. I mean, he, and he still can't. He took Spanish and did really good, but then just stopped. I don't know. But that should be our desire for our children, for our brothers and sisters, for them to give it all to the Lord, to follow his call on their life, not to hold them back. Because, you know, in the world system, we think, oh, well, if they could become a doctor, or if they could become a lawyer, or, you know, these great professions, if they could make it to be a professional athlete, all these things, that would be great. No, the greatest life to live is one totally surrendered to the Lord. Totally surrendered to the Lord following his leading and his guiding. You say, you might be criticized here, but in heaven you have a master who applauds your love and devotion for him, just like he did for Mary that day. George Whitefield, the evangelist of the first great awakening, said, oh, for a thousand lives to be spent in service for Christ. However, we must never forget, we only get one. We only get one life to live. What are we doing with it? Are we just so caught up in the world's system, the world's game, just trying to make another dollar to spend it on something that we don't even need? Or are we giving our all to the Lord? Are we making that sacrifice of love, that sacrifice of extravagant love unto the Lord? Because that's what it's about. In verses 6 through 9, we see Jesus standing up for Mary. He took a stand against those who murmured against her, who were indignant against her. A woman who has showered him with a sacrifice of love only to be scorned and ridiculed by those who should have known better. Again, the face of the church. Church, we should know better than to make some of the remarks that we make concerning our brothers and sisters. And we've got to get to a place to where we ask the Lord to, to tame our tongue. to put his words of love and encouragement and edification in our mouths rather than murmuring and complaining against everything that comes our way. Jesus says, leave her alone in verse 6. Why do you trouble her? Why do you harass her? Why are you giving her a hard time? She has done a great thing for me. She's done something wonderful and important to me. Verse 8 makes it clear. You see, I found this quote. It says, one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. One life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. How much of what we're doing in our everyday life is for the Lord? Because everything else is just going to fade away. It doesn't matter. Verse 7, some people have had some uh, problems with this verse because they misread the verse, thinking that Jesus is kind of callous or insensitive to the poor, but that is not true at all. You see, he says the poor are always with us in this fallen and broken world, and we can and should do good for them. Matthew 25, 40 through 45 instructs us and the king 
shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in, naked, and you clothed me not, sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we as an angry hungered, as a hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto you? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. He wouldn't have said those words if he didn't have concern for the poor. And we should make the most of every opportunity. If we have something to give to someone who's less fortunate, especially those that are of the household of faith, because that's what the word says, we need to be giving it. We need to be doing it as unto the Lord. Those are things that will last, right? Nothing else will. So Jesus believed that. He taught that. The issue is between always and not always. The poor are always there, but Jesus would not be. Jesus is again telling them, you've got me right here before you right now. And what are you doing? You're choosing to murmur and complain, to fuss. She's the only one that's honoring me, that's worshiping me before I go to the cross, right? Can you imagine what was the tension that was in the room that day? The opportunity to show him this kind of personal love and affection would soon be gone. And they shouldn't have missed it. And guess what? Neither should we. Neither should we miss an opportunity that, I say that all the time. Lord, don't let me miss an opportunity that you've placed right before me to do good unto someone as if I'm doing it unto you. Don't let me miss an opportunity to sit at your feet to worship you. We've had some powerful services here lately. Great opportunities to come to sit at the feet of Jesus. Did we make the most of it? Oh, well, we'll I'll do it next time. I just don't feel like it this time, right? Jesus is God speaking and the first of the great commandments always trumps the second. Jesus indeed asserts his priority and preeminence above all others. And this might help. See, if you put these words in the mouths of any other human person, it kind of sounds self-centered, right? Uh, but when you put them in the mouth of the Son of God, who for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich, it makes all the sense in the world for him to say this. We should worship him at all times, whenever we're given the opportunity. We should care for the poor, but we should worship the Savior. We should care for the poor, but we should worship the Savior. Isaiah spoke God's message to the people, telling them to stop their practice of empty ritual and begin to live a life acceptable to the Lord. Stop going through the motions. Isaiah 58, 6 and 7 says, Is not this the fast that I have chosen? 
to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that, that, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from his own flesh? So he was speaking even in the Old Testament of how we're to treat one another. You see, genuine devotion never considers the investment. It just simply and spontaneously acts and does all that it can to help. And I can, I can say um, that this church has done that on multiple occasions, and I know that it blesses the heart of God that we've seen needs, needs have been brought to our attention, and we've acted, you've acted, you've given unselfishly, but there's more. And we should never think, oh, well, I've already given. I can't give anymore. And I'm not talking about tithe or things like that. I'm talking about when there's a need that comes up. If we will begin to be a people that give out of our own need, oh, wow, the Lord will give in an even greater way. He will give pay back. He will repay. He will pour out his blessings like never, ever before. The Lord through the prophet Zechariah said in Zechariah 7, 9 and 10, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil. Imagine, just even think about it, evil against his brother in your heart. And I'm afraid there's a lot of Christian folk who have been imagining a lot of evil here lately. Have been thinking thoughts that we shouldn't think towards brothers and sisters. Those that have professed, even though they don't, uh, we may not agree on things. If they have professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, all we should be doing is praying for them. Praying for them. Praying that the Lord would enlighten the eyes of their understanding. Give them discernment. Show them the right path. Not think evil of them. Solomon also said in Proverbs uh, 14, in 31, he that oppresseth the poor reproacheth his maker, but he that honoreth him hath mercy on the poor. This may be the one reason why commitment to God is so closely associated in Scripture with concern for the poor and oppressed, right? Only by putting God in his way first would, one, would someone exhibit compassion by surrendering, surrendering material possessions to meet the needs of others. When you see people doing that, they've got a heart for the Lord. Because I, I don't need anything. I, I, you know, we, we say that a lot, especially around Christmas time. My kids don't need anything. But there are so many who have great needs just for socks, for warm clothes, for a coat. Right? And how selfish as a society, as a whole, have we become? We talked about this around the table uh, a couple weeks ago. I think it was when the, um, what do you call it, Mega Millions or Jackpot or whatever was like at a billion dollars. I said, there's no reason why anyone in America should go hungry. 
There's so much money to go around, and yet people would willingly buy a lottery ticket rather than buy a meal for someone. Why? Because they think they might get something out of it. I'm going to tell you, go ahead and give me your money that you're paying for your lottery tickets, and I'll give you half of it back, and you're going to get more than you would get just basically flushing it down the toilet. But when you give to the work of the Lord, he always gives back. It's not a gamble. It's a sure thing. And that's just not money. That's our time, our efforts, our talents, everything that we have, who we are. When we give to the Lord, it's a guarantee that he will give back. The word tells us that, and the word cannot lie. So we see this in Mary, the giving of herself, the giving of something very precious to her. In verses 8 and 9, I'm trying to hurry so I can finish this. We see three things about Mary. First, the word says that she did all that she could. She held nothing back, nothing. Second, her act of extravagant love has a prophetic and symbolic significance. She anointed Jesus' body before the burial. Why? Because she knew that he was going to be resurrected. She believed it. Did she have greater insight into the Lord's coming uh, than the 12 disciples? I don't know. She heard what he said, just like the disciples, but she chose to believe. That's the difference. Do you believe what he says? And if you do, you're going to receive. If you just simply believe. We, we're all in here. We all hear the same thing. But only some will choose to receive and believe it. Wholeheartedly grab hold of it. Others will let it fall by the wayside. Thirdly, Jesus makes a promise that her sacrifice of extravagant love will never be forgotten. As the gospel continues to advance among all the nations throughout the whole world. Right? It's a certain thing. We heard it tonight. You heard about her tonight. That's it, his promise continuing to remain true. That's how good he is. Then in verses uh, 10 through 11, some people find Jesus useful because of what they can get from him, and others find Jesus beautiful because they get him. Right? We get Jesus. I am his, and he is mine. Those words are so beautiful. And when you truly realize that at the end of this life, we get Jesus. We win. What's our prize? Him. The one who died for us. The one who laid down his life for us. See, Mary found Jesus beautiful and gave all that she had to him. In contrast, Judas found Jesus useful and sought to get all he could for him. Judas Iscariot, in Mark, he reminds us, was one of the twelve. Now, when they list the apostles, he's one of the last, always. He was so close to Jesus, and yet he missed him. There's so many that are close to Jesus in the church today, but yet they miss him. They miss him at every turn. 
They're not benefits, uh, beneficiaries of what his finished work accomplished on Calvary. Why? Because they choose not to be. They just want to be close enough to try to get something from him. And that's it. That's all they're concerned with. Amazingly, no, or not surprisingly, again, uh, he's the last in the list of the apostles. But he actually takes the initiative in going to the chief priest in order to betray Jesus. Both Luke and John inform us that, of course, Satan moved upon him to betray the Lord, but still he made a free will choice to betray the Son of God. Verse 11 is simple and tragic all at once. The leaders of the Sanhedrin were glad to hear this and promised Judas money. Matthew tells us that it was for 30 pieces of silver. Actually, that was the value of a slave accidentally gorged to death by an ox. That's all Jesus was worth to them. Zechariah 11 and 12. It's going to come up here. And I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. The price that they would pay for an injured slave. That's all Jesus was worth. The, Jesus was lightly esteemed not only in his betrayal, but again in the low sum agreed upon by Judas and the chief priest. Judas then began to look for an opportunity to betray him. It would come much sooner than he expected, but with results he would find deathly disappointing. He had no idea. A contrast that we see clearly in Mary and Judas. And it's, it's instructive when we think about this. Mary, a woman of no real standing. Judas, a man, one of the apostles. Mary gave what she could to Jesus, but Judas took what he could get for Jesus. Mary blessed the Lord. Judas betrayed his Lord. Mary loved her Lord. Judas used his Lord. Mary did a beautiful thing. Judas did a terrible thing. Mary served him as her Savior. Judas sold him like he was a slave. Mary memorialized forever for her devotion and Judas memorialized forever for his betrayal. I want to be like Mary. But how often is it that it's Judas who so readily appears when we truthfully, truthfully look in the mirror and see ourselves and what we should have done for the Lord but failed to do so? And only the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient for our sin-sick soul. It's only the gospel that will change us, that will give us the heart like Mary had. Again, the three times that she's mentioned in the gospels, we find her at the feet of Jesus, pouring out an extravagant love. But I'm going to tell you, even the greatest attempts that we make at loving on the Lord, nothing compares to the love that he pours out on us. That great love was shown when he stretched out his arms on Calvary's cross and it is still being poured out to you and me today. Over and over again, he's blessed my life. He's blessed your life.
If we had time, we could go around the room and you could just talk for hours, I'm sure, of all of the good things, the way he's provided, the way he's poured out his love on each and every one of us in here. And tonight, in closing for just a moment, I want us to come. I want us to gather around these altars. I want us to pour out love for the Lord like maybe we haven't done in a long time. And I encourage you not to just do this one time and walk away, but daily, daily we should be giving our all. We should be giving a sacrifice of love to the Lord for all that he's done for us. So as you stand to your feet, Israel's going to play the song, and I just want you to respond and come. Allow his love to be poured out on you as you pour out on him. Capture my heart again. Ooh. 
us time and time again, Lord, and we ask now, Lord, God, just for forgiveness, Lord, for those times where we've sold you out, Lord, those times, Lord, where you desired to move in ways that we could only imagine, Lord, but yet we sold you out, Lord, forgive us, God, give us a heart, Lord, that's totally sold out and surrendered to you, Lord, as we receive every benefit, Lord, that you died on Calvary's cross so that we might have, Lord. God, tonight I'm asking for you to continue to stir up our hearts, Lord, that we would continue, Lord, just to thank you and bless your name, Lord, for all that you've given us. Lord, we just ask that you be with each and every one of us as we go our separate ways, Lord, and bring us all back together at the next appointed time. We'll give you glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Don't forget... Have a little talk with Jesus tomorrow at 1.